This is the Patriot Cause with Bud Cornwell, United States Marine Corps retired. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. Welcome back, Patriots. This is the Gunny, and I got a return visitor that I'm always ecstatic to have on our podcast. He is a very good researcher. He's a patriot. He was in the Navy. So we have a lot of connections together. He was on episode 141 where we talked about the general welfare clause. And I said, hey, we just got we got too much to, to continue with that discussion just to have a single podcast. So I'm bringing Dr. Dale Walker back today, and we're going to kind of stretch this out, you know, break it down and kind of stretch it out from the general welfare clause and go forward into understanding how we initially had limited government uh, when the country began to this massive powerhouse of corruption and absolute control of American citizens. So without further ado, Dr. Dale Walker, how are you doing, sir? Good. Thank you, Gunny. <laughs> Again, I appreciate you being on the show and your knowledge is, you know, tremendously valuable to anyone that decides that they want to learn more about the situation, especially the financial accounting issues dealing with our federal government and how we go from A to B. Absolutely. So, how do we go from the general welfare clause where the government is limited, federal government, mind you, mm -hmm. limited to protecting us mainly from the outside and not necessarily designed to protect us from the inside, which was the purposes of the state? Correct. That's correct. Okay. Well, I want to start by uh, clearing up my, my understanding of the general welfare clause. Uh, because the more I have gotten into the Constitution, the more I've read other things about it. Uh, the General Welfare Clause does not give the government the authority to expand its services. And I, I think my, my initial understanding of the General Welfare Clause came from a guy named Judge Andrew Napolitano. And uh, he had some conversation about general welfare and how that how that's used to expand the government, but that's not that's not right. Uh, the general welfare is in the preamble to the Constitution, and all it says is that they want to uh, let's see. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States. That's just a lead into the constitution. And what they mean, what they meant by the general welfare is health, happiness, and fortunes of a person or group. You must look out for your own welfare. So that, that's just saying, uh, they just wanted to, uh, 
a safe place to raise their family. And they wanted to do it in peace. They were tired of, of wars in Europe. And that that's all that meant. And I've got some uh, previous articles I've written. I'm going to have to go back and correct them because uh, the, the, those... <coughs> Those uh, increases in government uh, uh, based on general welfare is not true. It's not true at all. And uh, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of misinterpretation about that. Well, I think, um, um, I think part of the reason is if you, you know, if you're just doing research, everyday citizen, and you go look up the general welfare clause, it's mm -hmm. part of Article One, Section Eight of the U.S. Constitution, and this is exactly what it says: it grants Congress the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, right. impost, and exercises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Right. So when I first read that, I was like, you know what? That is like very ambiguous. It's right. it it's really huge, right? I it it doesn't kind of break it down. And I right. think the normal citizen during that time frame probably felt the same way. Thus, you had the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution there you go. to help understand or really understand what the federal government's power is. Mm -hmm. and, it, and the Tenth Amendment defines it as federalism, the relationship between the federal and the state governments as federal activity has increased, so too has the problem of reconciling the states and the national interest. So I think it gives a better understanding. So if you're out there researching, we're talking about the general welfare clause, you need to go and attach the 10th amendment to it That's before exactly you right. can have what, what Dr. Walker's really kind of kind of bringing on to us. That's correct. Uh, the 10th amendment says uh, Article One, Section Eight, uh, tells the government what it can do, and they can't do any more than that uh, without consent of the states. And I think that would that would obviously come from a, a constitutional convention. But um, the Tenth Amendment, Tenth Amendment says they, they can't add any additional services other than what's stated in Article One, Section Eight. Right. And it's so it's been misused over the years, and and um, uh, it's just uh, which tells us, you know, where where you're going with this is okay. What's an example of that? <laughs> well, there's millions of them per se. Oh, gosh, yeah. There's one in particular. Let's just use the Department of Education. Oh, now, yeah. if if you have the capability as an American citizen to say that the Department of Education, I know in your mind you're going general welfare, right? It's the general welfare that, that they're taking care of us. I get that, I understand that. But take the Department of Education and look at the general welfare clause and there's no way in the general welfare clause the government has the right to create that department. No. So you can't you can't use the word general welfare and and make it expand what is specifically in there. The That's general right. welfare is based upon taxes and levies to support the people in the country right. for you know those particular reasons, but not to create these massive departments of whatever. Right. 
And they say that the, to levy taxes uh, is to cover the expenses of those uh, the eight departments in Article One, Section Eight, and that would be a balanced budget. That's the other side mm -hmm. of it. Yep. So, and, and if you add all of these other departments, you can't increase the taxes uh, to pay for those. It just it just doesn't work that way. Gotcha. No. So and there's there's a lot of things that the government's doing that, that would be a whole lot better off at, at state level. And education is the number one for me. And I, I just, it's just awful what they've done to education system. But. Um, well, it's, it's jeopardizing our ability within our communities and our state to determine the correct education for us. Right. right. You know, unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you want to look at the statement is if you live in one state and and the populace of that state has a type of moral attitude or a moral foundation the federal government is trying to inject it what they think is the right education across the board of the country that's correct into a specific moral state but if you go to a different state, the, again, the overall population, it may have different views of what their moral foundations are. And I think that's where the, the issue with, especially with the critical race theory and all that is, is yep. it's elevating this destruction of the state's education process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the beauty of having 50 states is that you have, 50 states that, that, that are different and people within those states can do what they, what they like to do and they don't care about what their neighbor's doing. And to, to get the federal government to say, well, we're gonna apply this to all 50 states, that, that's not gonna work. Right. So, uh, I mean, and, and, and going back further, when you look at immigration into this country in the 1600 to 1900s, uh, those migrants came from different countries in Europe and Asia, and different language, different cu customs, different cultures, and, and they located in these states, and they're all different, and, and we're still all different because we're all descendants of immigrants. Yes. And, you know, certain, uh, certain nationalities do things differently, and you just can't make everybody do the same thing. It's just not going to work. Well, if you're, uh, if you're in a state that doesn't kind of align with your moral beliefs and, you know, the character that you're, you're building your family based on, mm -hmm. then you move to a different state. That's right. But the issue is today, because the federal government <clears throat> is so large and has drifted away from the general welfare into all welfare. That's basically how I look at it. It mm -hmm. almost doesn't matter which state you go in anymore. That's right. It it, it's, it's becoming a, a rule of law based by the elites in the federal government. Mm -hmm. Instead of we, the people, going to our congressmen, and within our state, our Congress people within our state and making the laws or changing laws to fit 
the foundations of our lives within our state. Mm-hmm. That's true. Plus, so how did we on- get to how do we get to the point where the federal government has so much power that it's really difficult for the states to even try to continue to you know live as a state and fight back on the federal government? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I've been toying with and and trying to figure out. Uh, how I could write an article uh, for COS that these states that are, I know there's quite a few of them that have have passed the the amendments in in one one house anyway, but figuring out what I can write that would make them uh, jump on board and and, I don't know. I, I, I'm still struggling with it, but I do have, I did uh, write my version of the 28th Amendment, which would be <laughs> if Convention of States, <clears throat> when it goes through, right, uh, it would draft the 28th Amendment. Um, and I, I'm, I'm hoping maybe if, if I if I get that published, it might make a difference. I don't know. Well, it would definitely have a, a better understanding of the purpose of this, you know, the convention of states. Sure. And sure. now, you know, the outcome of the convention of states in general is to do exactly what we want to do. We're, we want to go back to limiting the power of the federal government and get them back in that general welfare clause. Correct. But because of the lack of politicians over the years adhering to the constitution instead of their, you know, constituents that you want to call them mm-hmm. or, you know, donating companies that have an interest in that politician uh, it's real easy for them to to not want to to stay within that constitution. So, well, the other thing too is that um, if you downsize the government, I, I would say I would let me put it another way: if you, if you are going to pay off or or at least pay on the federal debt, you have got to downsize the government and. If we don't, we're going we're going to default on that note, and I don't know how we keep selling securities. With with, I, I just don't understand how how those countries are still buying their notes because um, it's just you know the, the the amount of interest on that debt uh, was is close to well, it's about uh, let's see, it's about Seven hundred billion dollars a year in interest, and uh, we we just can't pay that. I mean, it just keep oh, we just keep borrowing money to pay the interest. And the only way I know to do it is to is to get rid of some of these departments, downsize the government. I think it could be done over maybe a ten year period, uh, where some of that money, those that tax money. Uh, excess tax money because of the, they don't have those departments anymore. That excess money could be used to pay on the debt. At least well, you, 
you sent me, which I think is one of the, it's an excellent spreadsheet. And the reason I say that is because it's not all elaborate. It's not hard to read, but it details something that's very important. And that's the debt to equity ratio. Absolutely. So part of, of what you're talking about here is in 2020, this is where we're at. And then you got it spreading out to 2025. Mm -hmm. And of course you explained that safe zone, which, which personally I think should be a lot lower than 80%. But <laughs> the, the safe zone is the debt ratio compared to, you know, your receipts and outlays compared to what your debts are. But right. here's what's even more interesting is, on another spreadsheet, you went as far back as I think it was 1929 or, or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. And you showed the comparison of, of even going through World War II, which, by the way, during that time frame was pretty high, but it was only about 41%. Right. You know, the ratio of the debt, even when the billions or trillions of dollars possibly that we spent in defense. And it's, it still was at a 41% ratio. And today, you know, you're sitting at 100%, 120%. It's, you know, 125%. It's just, those numbers are unsustainable. They are. And what, what people need to understand as far as what, what, what I'm calling equity in this case is the gross domestic product. And, you know, if, if the debt is higher than what we're producing, I mean, it just, it just doesn't work. Can and, you, can you explain, um, you know, kind of break it down? What, what exactly does the growth domestic product mean? What, what does that terminology actually mean? That, that actually means what we are produced within this country. It does not necessarily what we've sold overseas. It's a matter of what we've produced in this country that, that as far as income goes and it and the return for that product sale is all, is is income tax. Right. So the, the the GDP has got to be higher than the than the federal debt in order to produce taxes uh to pay on the debt and 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 we're so far over it now i, I just don't see how, how that's ever going to work I, I just don't um, so if you if you go buy a new car for instance mm -hmm. and let's just say you know eighteen thousand dollar car you get a loan on it for five years mm -hmm. when you drive that car off the lot it's instantly going to lose value right so that product has already decreased and you're going to have to pay those monthly payments to bring down the, the principal of the loan on top of paying the interest until at some point the car's value is actually more than what you owe on the car. And that's yeah. how the GDP works the same way. Yeah. If, if our debt, debt is what we owe, by borrowing money and through the process of bar borrowing money in the federal government, they have created these different branches of the government because mm 
You can't have the Department of Education unless you have the money to create the Department of Education. But if the GDP does not support producing that Department of Education without, you know, making it difficult for Americans to live and produce, it doesn't make sense to have that department. That's, good That's not how politicians work. The way right. it works is don't care. We, we can make all the money we want to make. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to create this department so I can put my little political name on it and have the little checkbox that, you know, I did great for my country because I created a department of, you know, of whales or something. I don't know. But well, another side of that too, bud, is, is uh, you know, if they say, well, uh, we're just going to increase taxes uh, to pay for that. But what happens with increased taxes is that it, it could cause a recession. I mean, it could cause the, the GDP to go down. Oh, if wow. Prices, yeah. If prices get too high and it, it just goes in reverse. And, and that's kind of what's been happening uh, over the last few years, in, in addition to just having uh, budgets that are just unreal. I mean, we've got a we've got a what a two trillion dollar deficit that's just it's, i just can't i just can't believe it i just and I, then when the quote government shut us down the economy down because of this oh, virus yeah. going around yeah of course what is their solution no they didn't necessarily raise taxes but you could call it the same thing sure they took money that they didn't have and give it to the citizens to quote help them through this turmoil. Right. Well, they're getting money, extra money for the federal government, you know, unemployment stuff. And everybody understands you gotta you gotta make a living. We get it. But if you're not working for that money, you're not producing anything. That's correct. If GDP. you're not producing anything, the GDP goes down. drops down. And it yep. and it went way down in a year and a half compared to the rise it was going to. So, so it's, it's like a double-edged sword, right? You got people not working, producing stuff at the same time, they're getting money that was borrowed from the government. So it's a, right. you know, so they're not working and still getting paid. <laughs> well, to kind of, to kind of compare it to a business loan, I, what, what normally banks look at, at least is what I've been told. I, I can't, um, the, the, the debt to equity ratio for a for a business in order to, to borrow money is 50%. Um, and for the government, it's 80%. Now, I, the only reason I know they, they could come up with 80% is because the government can raise taxes. But that, I mean, that's, that's not necessarily so. They're going to have to cut, they're going to have to cut spending too. So uh, we're over 100% now and it's just, it's not good. Patriots, we're going to take a quick break and get back with Dr. Scott Walker. In the meantime, take a good listen to this clip on exactly what the general welfare clause is about and how it is has been misused over the years.
Michael, let's bring this down to earth. Let's look at a specific example of how the so-called living, breathing Constitution works, and that's what they've done to the General Welfare Clause. General Welfare is referred to twice in the Constitution, in the preamble and then in Article I, speaking about the federal government providing for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Think about it. Is there any dictator who ever lived who couldn't have said that what he was doing was for the general welfare? This is no kind of limitation on power, if that were what the General Welfare Clause meant. But it didn't mean that. James Madison was very clear about this. He said, the fact is, the Constitution lists the powers the federal government has. If it could also then do whatever it thought was good for the country, it wouldn't have bothered making a specific list. The General Welfare Clause means that when you are engaged in the powers we've given you, make sure you exercise those powers with an eye to the general welfare, what's good for the whole country. Here's a good way for people to look at the General Welfare Clause. Let's suppose I say, Tom, can you do me a favor? And you go, of course, Michael, you're a great guy who I admire and aspire to be like one day. I'll be glad to help you in any way I can. All right, so Tom, I got this fridge and I need you to help me bring it up to my apartment. Well, okay, that's not a problem. We all need to keep our food cool, as cool as you, Michael. And I say, okay. I also need you to do those dishes because they've been in that sink for quite a while. Gotta make some phone calls on my behalf. I'm a very busy man. And I need you to walk my dog. And I also need you to get a dog for me to walk. The idea that the general welfare clause means anything you want it to be is like saying, well, let me ask you for a favor, but then that favor ends up being something a little more complicated than just a favor. Now, how did the General Welfare Clause come to have this enormous, expansive meaning? We can trace it back to a justice from the 1830s, Joseph Story, who said that the federal government can tax for the general welfare, that taxation is one of the powers, and then once it has the money, it can apply that money to whatever it, more or less, what it thinks uh, conduces to the general welfare. And eventually, the Supreme Court in Helvering versus Davis, 1937, tried to codify that into law. So in other words, saying that the general welfare clause can more or less be a giant blanket covering every conceivable area of American life. The Republicans at one point had a constitutional caucus, and the point of this constitutional caucus was they're going to explain the constitutional backing for every bill that was being put forward in the House. So Tom, you watched Scooby-Doo when you were a kid, right? Who didn't? Okay, I'm sure you related very much to Velma. I guess I didn't watch it. Well, Velma was the smart one, and she was always the one solving a mystery. And a lot of the times... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the one I identified with, yes. So this Constitutional Caucus sat down, just like the Scooby-Doo cast, and they said, all right, let's figure out who's behind this bill that we're going to pass. And they take off the mask, and the answer is, oh, the General Welfare Clause. It's always the General Welfare Clause that justifies their bills. In fact, it's not a mystery at all. This clause has been behind pretty much every bill whenever the federal government tries to do something that the constitutionalists never even thought they would have the power to do or even to think to ask for. It has been putty in the hands of people who want there to be no limits on government power at all, so I say take the putty away from them. This isn't just something to discuss in some kind of ivory tower way. The General Welfare Clause is an example of how the so-called living, breathing constitution affects all of our lives. <laughs> So let's continue our discussion with Dr. Dale Walker about the General Welfare Clause and how 
the federal government has increased way over what they deserve to have in their power. Did I lose you? No, sir. I'm still here. Oh, I'm just, okay. I heard a I'm ding. following you right along. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I was, um, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm absorbing, you know, what you're saying. Yeah. And so let me ask you this. Yeah. So we're going from general welfare to this behemoth. In, in your mind, because you've done a lot of research, you got, you know, these gigantic spreadsheets, which, you know, mm-hmm. little simple guy like me takes forever to try to figure them out. But if there's these different departments that were created, mm-hmm. is there one specifically? I know you talked about the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Is, is, do we understand an impact that if we try to work towards eliminating or downsizing the government, where do we make that chop at? Where do, where do we do the best for people in the United States at the same time to reduce the deficit of the federal government? Mm-hmm. Well, can't, you can't make more money. You got to stop mm-hmm. spending money first off. And the second yeah. thing is you got to take away things that are spending money. Right. Well, the, the, I've kind of toyed with that a little bit. I've kind of got a, a, a like a 10 year, uh, time frame where I take out, take those, some of those departments out and whatever excess funds for the next year can be used to pay on the debt. And it, and it goes on out from there. But, uh, uh, what I, what I'm afraid of is that, well, I'm not afraid of it, but if, if you take, um, well, the two big ones, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, those are, those are about half of what our budget is. And, uh, you know, if those come out, uh, I don't know which states would be most affected by taking that department out. I mean, I would think that some of that federal money would have to go to those states to at least get them all, help them get off the ground. And that, the other part of it is that eliminating them um, uh, has got a, is going to have a downside. And I'm not sure I know what that is at this point because I don't know uh, if the states are uh, are dependent on federal money to get their job done. Because if they if they delete the department. You know, it may hurt the it may hurt the state, and I don't know exactly how to do that. But um, I well, think, I think those... the yeah, the mm-hmm. first thing that would have to happen is the states would have to the legislations in the states would have to say we are going to absorb this function that the government provides, right? And then they will have to understand what that costs, mm-hmm. and they also would have to compare that to the money that the states send to the federal government and or the taxes that the citizens in that community or in that state are being taxed. Mm-hmm. Correct. So it is possible if the states w- work this out, that they can reduce the income, the federal income tax that a person pays to the federal government, if they are providing the services that the federal government provides. Mm-hmm. Correct. That I'm absolutely convinced the Constitution would allow them to do that. Yes. But 
uh, if the state legislation doesn't work towards that, uh, then yes. How do we determine what we can, you know, chop at the federal right. government level? Because right. if you chop, take say say for instance, you take the Department of Education out. Do you think the federal government is going to reduce the income tax on the citizens because they're no longer providing no. education? Of no. course not. <laughs> the government will never get rid of any dollar that goes to them. That will never happen. No. It's just uh, we'd have to know what the budget is for each state on these departments that we were going to shut down to see uh, what kind of an impact it would have on them and how much money they're going to have to pick up to to cover it, and, and they may already have it covered. I don't know, because uh, I mean, a lot of these, I'm sure they're uh, they're just getting federal. Oh, the other thing I heard, understood, is that these federal grants are not constitutional. They're they're given federal grants in order to uh, make the states dependent on the government. To make this stuff happen, and that's that's not right. Those federal grants, are, so I don't know. I'd have to know what what state budgets are for each of these departments that we were going to shut down to see what impact it's going to have on them. Right. On them. Well, I know the state has the power. So, great yeah. example is when people went on unemployment, mm. and they passed that I don't know one point nine trillion dollar recovery bill, yeah. whatever thing it is the COVID bill, I guess they called it. Mm -hmm. Then it, it, the federal government added additional dollars into the unemployment of the citizen. Mm -hmm. As the states started recovering, then the legislation in the state cut off that federal funding. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. have the power to do that. They do. It, it's, it's not that they can't do that. Mm -hmm. They won't do that. And especially when, I was talking with many legislators, specifically Randy Alexander, when mm -hmm. he was a legislator in Arkansas, he was on the education committee within mm -hmm. the legislation. And he's seen how much money that Arkansas was sending to the federal, sending to the federal government for the education part of it. I'm going, it doesn't make any sense to me, Randy. We're taking money out of the state, sending it to the federal government so they can put the education back in our state. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Why would, no, why would, why wouldn't we just take that money and have our own education system yeah, and not yeah, have to yeah. rely on the government? Yeah. And he says, obviously it's a lot more complex than that, but you can't, you can work towards um, developing your state better to not sure. rely on the federal government, right. but it well, just takes, it takes a lot of effort. It does. And I, I did an analysis of the Arkansas uh, Education Department, and I haven't finished it yet. I mean, I know kind of where things are going, but I, I don't understand a lot of their reporting. So, well, I can pick out what the federal funds are coming in and what federal funds or what state funds are going up out to federal, but I need to follow up on that. And, and uh, hopefully Arkansas would be maybe representative of of most of the states as far as how the how the flow how the money goes. Yep. But um, but unfortunately, you know, we've gone from the general welfare clause where citizens in this country worked, produced, 
and those earnings advance their lifestyle. And, you know, if you got a better job, produced better, had a bigger farm, then you made more money. Yeah. And at that time frame, very, very low taxes was going into the federal government, mainly for the defense of it, for, you know, the army, the Navy, et cetera, yeah. those kind of things. Of course, back then you didn't have, you know, blacktop roads and all that kind of stuff. So what I'm getting at is we have gone from our world being within the state from a earning money transfer process to this massive federal process. Mm -hmm. And we only have ourselves to blame for that. That's great. Now, the real reason it happened is because of selfishness. It's political selfishness is what it is. Mm -hmm. And all states, pick one, doesn't matter. You have a number of legislators that are in that state that are looking out for themselves. They'll say, well, my constituents and I'm you know, passing bills to do this, but generally they're looking out for themselves. Well, if they're doing it, you know, the federal side's doing the same thing. Sure. You know, how can I get federal dollars to pay my constituents so that they have a better lifestyle instead of my constituents earning it? Really, that's how simple it is. Yeah, it is. Because you get uh, you get unemployment up to three or four thousand dollars a month. I mean, they're not they don't have any incentive to go to work. Exactly. So you have a bunch of kids. And that just helps it even more. So what are the, you know, what other departments or, you know, things that you look at when you're doing your investigation that, you know, could probably be iffies, you know, is there a reason that we have this, you know, those kind of things? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, I mentioned health and human services and housing and yep. urban development. Uh, got the Department of Transportation. Uh, Department of Energy, Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Homeland Security, um, Department of Labor, Department of uh, Agriculture, and Department of the Interior. Now, the only the only one that I can see when it was initiated, it was, was a benefit was the Department of Agriculture in 1889, which was after the Civil War. And it was done to help the farmers get back on their feet and feed the country. Now, I understand that one. But they should have put a time limit on it, like 10 years or so. Right. And, you know, if they, if they have to do something like that uh, for a recovery type thing, then they probably put a 10, maybe a 10-year limit on it and it goes away. I mean, they just can't keep doing this forever. Yeah. So I don't think uh, American citizens would disagree with the ability for us to help in those kind of things, different crises. No. For no, instance, no. when we have like a national disaster and hurricanes or tornadoes, yeah, absolutely. I don't think we have a problem with, again, controlled amount of dollars that go into kind of rebuild and help people get their lives no. back. Absolutely. But when, when the federal government gets their hands into anything 
they don't want to release it. Right. Because it's a, it's a, you know, notch on their collar. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, if this goes away, then my constituents are not getting paid what they, you know, what their involvement is through the federal government. Mm -hmm. What should happen is the federal government gets involved like agriculture thing after however many years, the federal government stops the funding, stops that department. And then the states work within their state to continue it if necessary mm -hmm. or completely abolish it. And then the states have to follow the same process at some point. The states are no longer going to support this once the people get back to work and everything's back together. Mm -hmm. That's this not, that's not how that's not how bureaucracy works. Right. The other thing I thought about is if we if we cut this back to the to the eight uh, departments that are uh, in the Constitution, if we cut that back. Uh, then with with uh, uh, you know uh, like what we're doing with Zoom and and some video conferencing and stuff like that, our senators and and representatives at the national level could stay in the stay in their own state. And they wouldn't have as much to do as they do now with all this other stuff. Right. And I'm sure they'd be a whole lot more efficient. And, and another thing, they would be uh, in their state and they would be uh, subject to uh, being visited by their voters. <laughs> yep. And we don't want that to happen. Do you understand oh. that? Right? Oh, no. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to go back to our state and have to spend nine out of the 12 months actually talking to the citizens that we support. Uh, uh, yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, and uh, that's that's kind of how it is, you know, yeah. and the, what we call the swap, you know. Fortunately, there's uh, a number of great people that are up there. And they they're, are. And they're, fi they're fighting the fight. They're doing what yeah. they can. Yeah. But it's going to take the American people to change the, the conceptual idea of the swamp right and i and i think one of the amendments that that you guys have proposed is, is term limits and i think that's gonna that's gonna help a lot because we've got i think i saw where uh, 38 out of 100 uh, senators have been in longer than 10 years uh and some of them 30 and 40 years and that that's just too long they just you know uh, I think 12 years would be plenty for Senate and the, and the House. I don't know. I guess probably 12 years on the House, too. And, and I would think some sort of a limit on the Supreme Court justices as well. Yes. But it's got to, it, those people have got to turn over because they, they want it. It's got to be short enough where they, they They've got to, if they've got something to do, they better get it done uh, before their term runs out. Absolutely. So if, if this is such a, a tackle, is, do we, do we think that the legislators understand all this? Or, or do you think they're just, what I mean by legislature, I'm about the state. The state, mm -hmm. does the state legislators actually know and see 
these numbers and, and the, the expenditures and those things that are going on? Or is it just, or they're like us, most of us in America is like, yep, you know, we're spending trillions of dollars. We have, you know, $28 trillion deficit, but they have no clue how that happened. You know, what is the impact? They just look, it's a lot of money. Right. Well, that's the, that's the, uh, the thing that I've got to figure out is how best to present that to get their attention. I mean, right. the debt to equity ratio has got to be one of them. If I can explain it or people uh, can understand it, but I mean, we're this, this, this seal, this convention of States has got to happen. I mean, it's just got to. I think it's the, the, the only civil solution to be able to sit down at a table with our other states. Right. And I think it's actually strange that even back in the 1920s when, you know, Dust Bowl, all those kind of things were happening. Mm-hmm. And of course, with uh, the New Deal, they were building bridges and dams and right you know, and the money's just going up and up and up and up um, that we didn't look at that as American citizens, even at that time and say, Whoa, wait a minute. Uh, You're taxing the crap out of us because every time they develop these ideas to do these things, they raise taxes to pay for. Right. It's not like it. Well, we have the money to do it. If you're if you're in debt, you don't have the money to do it. That's right. And the only way you can increase federal dollars is one, cut programs. Mm-hmm. You cut the program, you still have the dollars that went to that program. You move them over to something different, right? Or you raise taxes. Mm-hmm. And they've raised taxes and raised taxes and spent money we don't have to the extreme to where now I believe even if, if they made every American citizen pay 50% of their income to taxes, we still, it would still take generations to recover. It would, it would. Because the downside, they start spending that much money. They don't, they don't have money to, to, to buy necessary stuff for their families. And yep. Inflation goes up and the spending goes down, and it just it's it just doesn't work. Yep, it's you 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 would kill us. You yeah. would you would end you would end this country as we know it, and many uh, millions of people would be in poverty overnight. Absolutely. And people would go bankrupt. Yep. Uh, home loans wouldn't get paid. Car loans wouldn't get paid. Right. And it's a mess. Yep. It is. Well, Dr. Walker, I, as always, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, what I would like to do next time is you had started creating, well, you have written the book, America, Make America Great. Yeah. I don't remember the last part of it. <laughs> but, uh, the, on, the, on, the only way out. The only way out. Yeah. So if you want to, we can get back together later. We can start chopping on, on that book. I don't have it yet. Um, I need to go out there and get it. 
and highly recommend the listeners to do that. Make America Great, The Only Way Out, Dr. Dale Walker and his compadre. What was her name? Virginia, I think, Dr. Virginia. Uh, Vicki Meyer. Vicki Meyer, yep. Mm-hmm. So together they wrote a, an, a, an explanation of where we're at and where we need to go to get mm-hmm. back into some type of resemblance of a fiscal and expenditure life mm-hmm. to where we don't kill our grandkids and our great-grandkids and so forth. So check that book out. Go go buy that book today. And I think uh, as soon as I get mine, <laughs> I'm going to read through it and we'll get together and we'll kind of break some of those issues down and hopefully we get the people better understanding of the truth, not just, well, we're 27 trillion, 32 trillion in debt, but why, how, what do we do about it? Right. Well, if you'll, if you'll uh, email me your address, I'll send you a book. Oh, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. I will yeah. definitely do that. Definitely do that. Sure. And, um, and I will read through that whole book and, mm-hmm. the, and, the next time we get together, uh, we can we can kind of chop the ma- the major things out of that, okay. and and give them an understanding of, of where we're at. Okay, cool. Well, sir, I hope you have a great day. I thank you again for coming on the podcast, and thank you, sir. it's a pleasure. And we will be looking for you. Well, I'll be looking for the book since I get it out there, <laughs> and then I'll get back with you and. That way, at least when you start talking about it, I'll have an understanding of <laughs> where we're at and, and then we can keep a, keep a good conversation going. Okay, very good. All right, sir. Have a great day and we'll talk Thank to you, you later. Yes, sir. Thank okay. you. So there you have it. Dr. Dale Walker, great patriot, very knowledgeable on the budget and how the federal government is massively out of control and needs American people to stand up to fight against this. Check out Dr. Scott Walker's book, Make America Great, The Only Way Out. Go get it today. Understand what we need to do and how we can preserve our heritage and our country for our grandkids. Stand up, show up, speak up. This is The Gunny out.